Welcome back to Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser, and today we're talking about best sound. It's been a wild, busy, and due to the work stoppages, compressed awards season this year. But we are now wrapping up our coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards with these special roundup episodes featuring conversations with the nominees in three important categories, best original score, best sound, and best cinematography. We are releasing these episodes now, right before the official end of Oscars voting, in the hopes that maybe these interviews will make it a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy voter or you simply want to do a little better in your annual Academy Awards office pool. As we do every year, we invited all of the nominees in each category to participate, and here are the films nominated for Best Sound in alphabetical order. The Creator. Maestro, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Oppenheimer, and The Zone of Interest. For your convenience, we have an index with time codes for each of these interviews in our show notes. Now, these are just segments from the full-length conversations we've been conducting through the past several weeks and months. So if you'd like to take a deeper dive, we will have links to each of those full-length individual episodes also in our show notes. But for this episode, we begin with The Creator. This is from our in-person discussion from episode 165 back in October with director Gareth Edwards and the nominees in this category. Sound designer and supervising sound editor Eric Adol with his fourth Academy Award nomination. Sound designer and supervising sound editor Ethan Vanderine with his seventh Academy Award nomination going for his third win. Re-recording mixer Tom Ozanich, who's a dual nominee for his work on The Creator and Maestro, nominations number three and four, and re-recording mixer Dean Zapancic, who is also a double nominee this year with The Creator and Maestro, nominations number four and five. Unfortunately, due to production schedules, the production sound mixer and fellow nominee Ian Voigt was unable to join us in the conversation. So let's hear from the team behind The Creator. Came from various angles, you know, like all ideas do. I think uh, one of the main inspirations was it was the end of the last film I did and I went on a road trip um, to Iowa of all places because my girlfriend's from there and um, we were driving to a family's house and and it's just like a sea of crops you know like tall grass and then there was this factory in the middle of nowhere and I was just listening to music trying to sort of semi think of like I wonder what I could do for the next film and this factory went past and there was a logo on it that this is the way I remember it there was a logo on it that was like Japanese and I was like, oh, I wonder what they're building there. And you know, my brain being the way it is, I was like, oh, it could be robots, you know, or something. That'd be cool. And then I started thinking, oh, I wonder what would happen if you were built in a factory and that's all you'd ever known. And then you stepped outside into the field and like, you know, saw the sky and everything. Like, what would you think? And I was like, oh, that's a cool, you know, twenty-second moment in a movie. But I don't know what that movie is. And then it just kept coming from there. And as we were driving, oh, it could be this, and then that could happen. Oh, it could be that. And it just sort of all came you know, it folded into place really fast. And by the time we got to the pulled upon the drive, I sort of had the whole movie mapped out. And it's quite rare that the gods give you it like that. And so I was like, oh, there's something in this if it came so easily. Or it's either going to be a terrible movie <laughs> or good. Uh, yeah, so it was kind of, kind of came like that. And then in terms of what people should take from it, I don't have an agenda in terms of like, there's a so I don't like films that preach. Like it's trying, to, I think the best kind of stories, I mean, we're, 
I, I, I don't see stories basically as a straight line. Like I try to view them more like a circle. And it sort of applies to sound as well in that my favorite type of filmmaking is when the perspectives change throughout. And you sort of get used to one perspective and then you suddenly see it from another. And it makes you question your you know, previous assumptions about something. And so like, you know, in terms of the, the movie as a whole, you're kind of like going off on this journey with this character and, you know, halfway through in theory, you're now, you've done a 180 and now you're looking back at everything from a completely different angle. And, and we did that a lot with the sound where in scenes, just as you're getting used to one perspective, you suddenly jump over here and we would try to like flip the switch and create that contrast because to me, contrast is kind of what gives everything a value. Like if you, if everything's the same idea, it just becomes like nothing after a while. And so it's like constantly changing gear, like visually, you know, audio, music, whatever, is what keeps everything engaging and, and makes the previous thing and the next thing have meaning. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, I feel like we did that with, the, with all the sound design, like in terms of the perspective shifts and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, just what Gareth is talking about, um, I think for me is actually probably the one, the single most important important thing to keep in mind as we're doing our work. You know, just the idea of contrast from moment to moment and, you know, um, keeping things from, from going flat and losing drama. So for us, like creating space and negative space, even if it's, you know, as small as, you know, a 24th of a second, like taking out a frame before some big event so that it can really register. That's like such a basic principle of sound design, sound editing. Um, so, you know, to be able to work on a movie with a director who, you know, thinks that way, it's, um, it's kind of a dream. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the questions I, I had for you, Gareth, is, you know, I, I feel like great sound design has been kind of a hallmark of all of your movies, even back to the beginning when you were working on such a, on such a low budget um, with monsters. But where, where did you learn about the power of sound as a storytelling tool? I, I, I really annoy these guys when we go in and do spotting sessions because I start doing the sound effects with my mouth. <laughs> I, I love that. It, it's fantastic. I love that. And in fact, we've recorded you sometimes doing that as kind of like a model. Yeah. Us. I think it comes from playing with Star Wars figures as a kid, you know, like... And playing, doing all the sound effects of the ships and stuff when you play with toys. And then suddenly, like, this is one giant toy. And so we go in and, and it's really hard sometimes to verbalize an idea. And you're like, what is it's something like, and I'll, st <laughs> I do it really badly, but I'll try and do it, like, I try and do an impression of it. And then on, on the odd occasion, like we did with the robot cops, the, the yeah, yeah. robot police, I was like, it's kind of like, like imagine like a binary, like it's, it's like a foreign language, but it's like broken binary, like a dial up modem. But, and I ended up doing it and they made me go on a microphone and do it. And then they put it, they, it's not in the movie, is it? Uh, should we tell you? Yeah. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's, okay. a <laughs> there's a little processed piece of that original recording. Okay, for okay. One, for one moment, yeah. Yeah, I hate hearing my own voice and that, so like, I kept telling them to get rid of it and stuff. But yeah, and then I think it's like, but you know, just to get like a little bit profound for a second, it's like film, what film can do that other art forms can't do is I think they're very close, they're much closer to like memory and dreams 
you know, in terms of watching the final experience, it's a little bit like how you remember things or how you, you know, dream about stuff at night. And, and so there's like a non-verbal non level to that, which you can't articulate, but it's very much about the use and misuse and, and removal of sound and like the greatest weapon, I think, that, that you guys have is sometimes silence. And, and there's this, I think there's an assumption going into filmmaking when you've never done this before. Like I first, like our big movie together was Godzilla. And, and there's this assumption of like, if you didn't do anything, like if you just were really lazy as a sound person, it would be quiet or it'd be silent. And actually what happens, it'd be really muddy and loud and just so much stuff. And the art, as you guys know, like the art of everything is what to take away to tell the story and what beats you want to hit. And then trying to be brave and find moments where, where it's like, okay, and we are always doing this. And this is what's great about these guys is that constantly going, okay, we're, I know we're supposed to do this over here, right? So let's, what if we did the exact opposite? Like, what if we misbehaved? Like, what's this crazy thing here? And try and find something. And often it would be like, you'd laugh at how bad it was, or it'd be like, oh, that doesn't work. Or, you know, you guys would try it and then show me something. But sometimes something magical comes of that where you go, oh, wow, I've not, that feels interesting. Yeah. And there's always this nervousness as a filmmaker when you've got two choices. One is what you're supposed to do. And the other one is like a bit odd. And you're like, oh, go to the, what I'm supposed to do because I can't get told off if I do that. No one can criticize it. And a friend who's like a great filmmaker told me like, no, I always do this. Like that's the path of least regret. And so like you try and never, like whenever something strange happens or something odd, you're like, fuck, let's just do it. You know, let's not second guess it, just do it. And like, try and like be different. I love that. I, I want you guys to give me an example of, of, of a time when you guys experimented with something kind of off the wall and maybe you thought it was not gonna work and then it ended up being in the film. Well, I mean, <laughs> what comes to mind? It's kind of the whole movie. <laughs> um, we took a lot of sort of like risks and weird choices, um, you know, beyond just, hey, maybe space can be silent. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think maybe what allowed us to take the most risks was Gareth and Hank um, cutting the whole movie without music. Yeah. And uh, which kind of created this blank canvas for us to do these weird switches and play perspectives, be totally immersed in something and then pull the rug out from under the audience. I mean, what you would always tell us is like, okay, we're, the audience is kind of like a little hungry chick and you're sort of placing these little kernels, which are like moments um, throughout the whole film and just kind of feeding the cinematic experience to the audience and usually we have to work really hard to kind of construct those moments in most films. And on every Gareth movie, it's super easy because it's just in your nature to create that throughout. So what's weird is like you get you get a bandwidth in the in the brain where you can only pay attention to what is it like two things, would you say? <laughs> at once? Two and a half. Two and a half, right? That's probably more accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so and one of them being like certain frequency higher, I guess, and one being a bit lower or something. And and so it's sort of, it's, it's, as crazy as it sounds, it doesn't hurt to try and do the sounds that you want to hear through the scene. So if it's like, like, because 
you're kind of you're kind of highlighting the beats that you want to hear. The pieces that are important. Yeah, and then everything else has to get out of the way of that. And it always feels criminal that these guys and their teams like put together so much, so many options, and then you're kind of pulling them away, like in the mix. Like mm. it's kind of one of the main things we end up doing, right? Many thanks to Eric, Ethan, Tom, Dean, and Gareth. Next up is Maestro. So let's welcome back re-recording mixers Tom Ozanich and Dean Zapancic, along with their fellow nominees in this category, sound designer and supervising sound editor Richard King, who is also a double nominee this year for his work on Maestro and Oppenheimer. Richard has won four Academy Awards, and these two films represent nominations seven and eight for him. Also joining is Steve Morrow, Maestro's production sound mixer, celebrating his fourth nomination. Also nominated for Maestro, two-time nominee, executive music producer, and supervising music editor, Jason Ruder, who is unable to join us for the conversation. So let's hear from the team behind Maestro from episode 184, which we released just a few days ago. Richard, you talk about, uh, you talk about Bradley wanting the, the track to communicate a, a sense of time and place. And I love the way this movie opens. Um, I'm not talking about the bookend scenes, but I'm talking about that first, you know, Bradley, you know, young Lenny Bernstein gets that call when he's 25. He, we, we figure out later that he's living in an apartment on the top of Carnegie Hall. So he runs down into the theater. The camera's doing this crazy swooping move. It's black and white, four by three. And immediately, you know, it says to the audience, this, there's going to be a presentational aspect to this. Um, there's, there's a, a strong hand guiding you through this, but it also kind of felt like a 1940s movie to me. And I'm kind of curious, you know, that, that sense of this movie feeling like a period piece, how did that dictate your choices from a sound effects and design perspective and also in the mix? Well, I thought about that a lot and, and I, and I, um, and, and, I think that he did want to use sound effects and sound design like sound effects were used in movies of the forties. That is very specifically. Um, if you heard a sound, there was a reason to hear that sound. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, you know, the dog barking down the street. If the dog barked down the street, that meant someone was going to show up at the door. It, it, there was a specific reason for each sound. And that evolved a little bit in the course of the film. That is, we, we, uh, we, we thinned out some scenes or made, made, I guess, made the sounds more specifically emotion-inducing or emotion-supporting. Uh, um, and the look of the film, the, the opening is so good. And so it just, it just brings you into that place, his frame of mind, the excitement of that moment, that period of history, uh, so well. And all of that, I think, can, you know, works together. The, the aspect ratio, the black and white, the nature of the, of the picture editing is very snappy and kind of 40s stylish, sty very stylistic. And, uh, and the, so subsequently, the sound design needed to be kind of stylistic and not, you know, necessarily rigidly realistic. Yeah, one of the funny things when we first were kicking around, you know, ideas, various ideas, um, before we started mixing anything, and and kind of what Richard was mentioning, some of the early spotting and conversations that we had early on, we were we kicked around some ideas about trying to potentially treat 
the sound of the film, you know, something representative of those eras, you know, whether we were going to, we, we talked about using, you know, old tube gear, potentially uh, recording something off to an optical track and then bringing it back in. So we got like a real authentic optical sound. And anyway, we kicked around all these different sort of treatment type ideas. And then ultimately when now none of that is, you know, all that's going to be kind of distracting technical stuff. And, and we don't want to do that. We want to very gently, subtly, you know, impart this flavor of those things um, and not, not actually do <laughs> anything that heavy handed. And, um, you know, honestly, I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised that it, it reads as well as it does, because it seems like, you know, from our standpoint, you know, something that we were very, you know, judici judicious and subtle about not trying to, you know, hit anybody over the head with it and just kind of just give it that flavor and that feeling of those, you know, each of the decades as we kind of progress through the movie. But, you know, probably the biggest thing to it is is really like the density of sound, you know, and like Richard was talking about how, you know, older things, you know, they, they just had less in the soundtrack and there were very specific things. And as you get into a more modern area, there's more detail and and fuller, more depth to, you know, how many sounds are playing and stuff. They weren't uh, the style in the 40s and 50s. They weren't spending a lot of time worrying about ambiences, uh, were, were they? The ambient and what we have are, uh, they're layered which they didn't layer back then, but the, the tightrope was that speaking of the scene that you were just talk, talking about, um, were very tight, were very forties esque, but then the score comes in and we hit full face Atmos. So we're weaving that, that, that we're blurring that line and towing that tightrope of going, Hey, this is a forties film. But you're in Atmos. Oh my goodness, the at, the atmospheres are Atmos, but you don't feel it. Uh, they're not. It's not smacking in the face, other than when the music comes in, and that and that was designed. That was always to be the character. So when music went away, we the sound effects had to fill the void, if you would, and then a lot of scenes in there, no score, big big dialogue driven dramatic scenes that we the sound effects are playing that emotion and then and then the score comes in as jason said in a, in a normal movie the that the composer would have been asked to to score you know that scene but but um I, i'm glad that we had the chance to you know provide some of that kind of back um, um background feeling ourselves uh, using sound effects I had a question that I wanted to ask you about that. It was such an interesting decision to me to use Bernstein's music to score, to score the film. Um, and there, there were just some moments that are just so amazing. I just wrote a note to myself. Like I, I, I was so captivated by that scene with the, you know, the, it's from Lonely Town, the pot I do right when we see Felicia for the first time, she gets off the bus and she's walking down the street towards a party and just like you lean into the music on that. And it's just so satisfying. It's really beautiful in that moment. But I think, you know, to your point, like there were also probably a lot of moments that, you know, 
were a little bit quieter, more anterior that you might have asked a composer to compose something specifically for those, but you didn't really have anything. So that was an interesting, you know, sound effects and sound design challenge, Richard, for you. And, and then obviously for Dean to mix that stuff in. I also have to say that, you know, it, to Bradley's credit, how do you have a composer compose music to a Leonard Bernstein, you know, movie without it just being like, who would have the guts? Who would have the guts to do that? We have Lenny's music. Let's use it when it when it's appropriate. When it's not, let's let it hang. One of the things I think is so cool about what we're talking about here, and the way the music is used in the movie, um, is very little of it is used in the way the a traditional score is. You know, I mean that does exist, but there's not that much of it in the movie. You know, like this when this music plays, like you said, and that the scene when we first meet Felicia, you know, it was designed, I mean, it was supposed to be like just grand and overwhelming and wow. It's operatic in a sense, right? We know we are meeting the heroine of the film at this moment. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's just so great that, that then in the other scenes, you know, to, to contrast that being meeting her, and then, you know, skip forward a couple of scenes to when the two of them go down into the underground theater and they have this big, you know, fairly lengthy scene. And there's no music until the very end that's taking us off into another scene. And what's so great about it is it really highlights their incredible performances. You know, there's nothing like... It's so quiet and intimate that everything is exposed, not just for sound, but for their performances, everything that's going on there. You get you get a depth, you know, of detail that you would normally never get, you know, and and without having the music there to fill in the spaces, the space is filled in by, you know, the the reverb of the space and little movements they make and and all these little nuancey details. A gift for me, my liege. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> Is your name? Oh, uh, uh, with your little spots of wax white rose, you look like the extravagantly hands of the flower. No, 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 you, <laughs> you look like the eye of a broken moon. No, you're terrible. Well, it's your line. You're always changing, my love. I didn't see you yesterday, but I looked at your horse. It's so beautiful. But not as beautiful as you are, because you are a dragon. Many thanks to Richard, Tom, Dean, and Stephen. Next up, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning from episode 155, back in July. Best sound nominees in this conversation are supervising sound editor James Mather with his third nomination after winning his first Academy Award for Top Gun Maverick. Re-recording mixer Chris Burden also with his third nomination after his previous win for Top Gun Maverick and the picture editor, Eddie Hamilton. Also nominated in this category, production sound mixer Chris Monroe and re-recording mixer Mark Taylor, who were unable to join us. Let's hear from the team behind Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, 
Well, you guys have teed up so much of the stuff that I want to talk about uh, in, in, in your response to that first question. But so I, I, I was going to get into this later, but since you brought it up, I want to talk a little bit about, I think people are kind of curious about Tom Cruise's involvement in the editorial and the mix of the film. Obviously, he's the producer. It says right up there at the, the like two of the first head credits are a Tom Cruise production, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. So, and then Eddie, I know when we were talking in Rome, you told me that Tom has uh, Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos in his home theater in Florida. And you just said that that's where he was monitoring a lot of this stuff. So tell me about his involvement, how he works with McHugh during the sound mix and, and, and during the editorial process. Yeah. And he's got a very, as you know, Eddie, he's very passionate and he has a very strong opinion about the way, I mean, I remember this from, from the airplane takeoff in um, yeah. Rogue Nation when, you know, you're sitting in a room with the man who is on the screen hanging onto a plane. You don't normally get the stunt man in the theater in a mix giving you notes about the intensity of how it felt. So with all these films, Tom's input is so visceral to what you're seeing because he was there. And it, often we will over, over, uh, emphasize an action scene, the fight in the alley scene, for example, with Pom. And, and, and we'd done a, you know, it was a, it, it was a little bit too clean, a little bit too crisp, a little bit too, um, was percussive in a way. And, and Tom was, Tom came in while we were doing that scene. We said, let's come out and come and have a look. And, you know, pulled it apart. Guys, it, you know, it's too much this. It's too much that. It's not a martial arts movie. It's a this. It's, I want to feel it. And this is the mantra that we hear and follow this is the mantra that the soundtrack has to has to abide by which is feel it and if putting in the production sound which gives away some of the set textures and and the hollowness of the you know what where they were and that's a bit dirty and a bit grubby and a bit scuffy if that is what makes the feeling work then that goes in and actually you know so a lot of times that perspective is missed because we weren't there at the time when it was being done and his involvement and his remembering of that. And he wants the audience to feel what he felt at that time. That's an extraordinary insight for the sound department to have that experience and that objectivity um, that he brings to every, every part of it, every stage of the sound that we do is he, he will go, I don't get it. I don't feel it or it's fantastic don't touch it you know uh, uh, but he's very 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 committed once he's in once he digs in you, you know you there's a lot to do there's a lot to get right and, and actually it makes it feel like you've got a mountain to climb but you, quite often it's only three or four tweaks and a bit of something else added in for and you're there so it's that uh, I'm, I'm sure eddie knows this it's that it's that understanding when somebody's giving you it's not understanding the, the, the intent of the notes and the direction they want to go and not be, not feeling like you've done it wrong and not feeling like you're miles away from where it should be. It's understanding that the passion involved in getting it that 2% right, 2% can take half a day, but it's worth it because when you listen back to it, it's like, oh, I'm there. I'm totally there. I'm not, you know, I'm drawn in. And this is what Eddie and McHugh and Tom, spend so much time um, creating with the picture that, that we, we have to make sure we don't stamp all over it and try and make it into a, a massive action sound. It's got to be the real sound in a massive action movie. And that's, that's why it's, that's the challenge. And just, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because it's not a sort of simplistic approach to um, getting the sound of the lo how location felt at the time. 
it's a combination of how it felt at the time, how it needs to feel in the movie, and and then just start to experiment and get there. You know, you'll the the, the, the wonderful major stunt motorbike off the the cliff edge. Um, Tom felt very strongly about the feel of when he's then um, plummeting through the air and wanted to capture that. And it was quite interesting. It was uh, it, it's something that you you could over-exaggerate or hold back on or play with different textures and so on. And, and we got there quite quickly on that. And he went, that's how I want it to feel and that's how it feels to skydive. And as I said, there's a sophistication to it because it can't just be uh, if someone's been in a stunt car, uh, a car doing the stunts, getting the exact sonic moment that it sounded like at the time. It's something quite layered and a version of that that we're trying to, to create for, for, you know, McHugh, Eddie and Tom. So, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because one of the things, and I remember talking with, um, I had the chance to talk with Tom uh, about uh, Top Gun as well. And I, I felt the same way about this and we, we had the chance to talk about it. It's like, you know, I feel like the work that you guys do on sounds is so much about giving the audience the subjective experience that the characters are having, right? And it's not about necessarily replicating what that location sounded like. But as you said so so well, it's you're using sound in a very specific way to put the audience in the kind of the emotional situation that the characters are in. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that actually, yeah. it, it, you know, you, you, I feel like dovetailing on that, a lot of what you're doing is almost subtractive. You know, uh, Eddie, it's the same thing that you were doing with the picture, which is like getting it down to the bare minimum. One of the things that, that did stand out for me now viewing the film a third time. And I, I, I saw online some chatter in the, the film sound nerd community about this over the weekend. You know, like, let's talk about the, um, the big airport, um, the, that, that kind of that cat and mouse game in the airport. It's a big sequence, a lot of characters, marble floors. There's almost no Foley footsteps in that sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really curious. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it's so a funny. very specific approach that people, some yeah. people, some of the, some of the, the film sound nerd people have called out and they're, they're it's, it's so, uh, so I'm, I'm curious yeah. to hear sort of like the, uh, like the evolution of that treatment of the, of those sequences. I, I feel like, Talking specifically about Foley, you guys were very specific in the way you used Foley, and it it yeah. appears exactly what it needs to, um, and it's this it, it's 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 much more specific than in a typical action movie of this scale. If I'm listening to a guy guy's foot feet while he's walking, I'm not watching what he's doing and aware of who he is and how he's feeling. I don't hear my own feet when I walk. I just don't. I it's not my thing. That's Tom's line. I don't hear my feet when I walk. So it's that. Okay, it's all about the perspective of the character that we're focusing on. If you hear everybody's feet, you don't hear that one person. And if you let the music take it, the feet just, it's all about timing. They get in the way. You know, there are times when they're really essential. When Benji's running down the metal steps, they, they do so much. They really help that whole location. They help. He's on his own. Um, and there are moments when it's really important. And I think as sound technicians and creatives, we like to over embellish a picture. That is our 
mode two. Like it's security rope. It's the thing that we have. We've got Foley coverage. We can use it for whatever. We've got, uh, you know, high pitched squeals for the cars. We've got glass smashes. We've got, and this process, more so than others, I think mainly because of the duration, possibly there was a lot of stuff going in. This process was the last weeks were out, out, take out, try with that. Let's not have that. Let's have that instead. Simplify, simplify so that the dynamic range becomes greater and more impactful and more, more deliberate. And it's not just there's, there's not this footstep track wallowing around that you occasionally hear and don't hear. If you can't hear it because of the other sounds, get rid of it. Let the other sounds have that little bit of space that that Foley might be taking up. And the percussion in this soundtrack is incredible. So Foley will compete with that. No matter how small, it could be like a rim shot is the sound of somebody putting a bag down. And that's, we just get rid, get rid. And it's a great discipline to embrace because it's all about confidence. It's all about having the confidence to not lean in on things that you know are your sort of standard tiers of soundtrack. Um, and it's much more exciting. It's like we... <laughs> <laughs> we have a day of culling and you know the poor mark in this instance with the foley poor mark's there having pre-mixed it all and he's just like all right i mean he's making it very clear that everyone can see that the finger is on the fader and it's down to zero <laughs> there is nothing it down. <laughs> <laughs> all the way through the reel okay that, is that better yes <clears throat> that's better for now we may need more but then it means that people can say i'd like to hear the feet there rather than i mean then you know it's in production. So then we go, okay, we need to strip out some of the production. Is it tied to the dialogue? That might be a bit of an issue. We, you know, we don't want to lose the performance. So, um, but it's a, it's a, I think it's a very good discipline. It's, it's a hard one, but it's well worth uh, exercising. Many thanks to Chris, James, and Eddie. The next film in the best sound category is Oppenheimer. So we welcome back sound designer and supervising sound editor Richard King, who you heard from just a few minutes ago talking about Maestro. Also nominated for Oppenheimer are re-recording mixer Gary Rizzo, who has six nominations and two previous wins of Academy Awards, both for his work with Chris Nolan. Also nominated are re-recording mixer Kevin O'Connell with his 22nd nomination now going for his second win and two-time Oscar-winning production sound mixer, Willie Burton, celebrating his eighth nomination. This is from episode 180, which we released earlier this month. And here is the Oscar-nominated team behind the sound of Oppenheimer. I think he developed a, a, a feeling. He, he wanted to develop a, um, like a feeling towards it, to, to understand it in a, in a visceral way, right? And so the... the um, the object was to make these events, these visions, convey the incredible latent power in the strong force, in the in the energy that holds atoms together, and what would happen if that force could be tapped into and released and used. Um, so, you know, we didn't want to use small microscopic sounds for these events. We wanted to use galactic events, huge events, so that you weren't sure if you were looking at, at planets and, uh, and celestial bodies interacting or if you were looking at quantum particles interacting. Um, 
and we used a whole variety of uh, of naturally recorded sounds. Um, uh, I don't really want to go, you know name specific things, but it, w- it was just a search basically to convey that that notion of um, this incredible latent power that ultimately we see in the Trinity test um, when when a when a sphere of when a sphere of plutonium of metal basically the size of a softball causes that 20 kiloton explosion it's it's quite amazing to think about that that's that's the explosive you know that's that's the that's the 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 stuff that blew up um and and so he's beginning to to grapple with these notions of you know of of uh of um of that energy and um there's also that cool uh, uh, kind of interacting wave, uh, those interacting wave shots that they did, um, conveying kind of the, the duality of, of particles or of, of light being a wave and a particle, of par- even quantum particles being waves and particles. Um, and they did all those practically. Those were all like the shot of Oppenheimer laying in bed with those bands whipping in front of them were all done practically on the set. So we wanted to adhere uh, pretty closely to natural sounds in, in conveying all that. You guys have all worked now on multiple projects uh, with Christopher Nolan. So I'm just kind of curious how the process works in, in working with him. Richard, do you, do you read the script before he goes off and shoots? Or at what point do you get involved? Are you feeding stuff to the, to the editing room while, while they're editing? Kind of what's, how, does, how, does, how does the sound design process begin? Yeah, I usually uh, am invited to read the script before he goes off to shoot. We have a, a conversation. Um, about the film, but also about practical matters and logistics and timing of, of things. Um, and, and then he goes off the shoot, which gives me a great opportunity to research and, and to begin reading about the subject at hand. And uh, especially in the case of, of Oppenheimer and also of, of Dunkirk, um, there's a lot of information available about these real world uh, events. And um, so I, totally went down the rabbit hole of reading everything I could find on uh, Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. Uh, I even read Chris Wallace's book, which is called something like uh, Countdown 1945. Or, and, but they all, they all contained slightly different versions of the events and different little, little nuggets of information that I was able to use later on. And uh, through uh, the participants, the scientists and the military uh, people involved, um, their, their, uh, their, their, um, their description of the, of the Trinity test, for instance, was really interesting. Um, and they all mentioned sound in some way that was kind of unique and interesting and, and sometimes using the words that I wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to hear. So that was, it was a really unique experience to them, both visually and sonically. And, um, and yes, and then I generally start actually start the film about the time they stop shooting, 
and start sending me scenes or reels. Um, and then how it works is we never do a spotting session. We, I just start sending the material and then I get feedback from Chris. So it's, uh, it's, um, an evolutionary process and a, uh, um, much more efficient, I think, than having an abstract conversation about sound uh, and trying to like, like, um, paint yourself into a corner that maybe later on you'll have a better idea. But if you've had this blueprint that you feel like you have to adhere to, then often the, the best ideas are never explored because you don't, you're not thinking, you know, you're not thinking about options or alternatives. And then Gary and Kevin, for you guys, um, like, are there temp mixes? Does Chris Nolan do, I mean, he's at this point, he's earned the, the right from the studio not to do test screenings unless he damn well wants to do a test screening. So what is that process? Or, or, or do you guys just kind of start pre-mixing and, and mix the movie? The true answer to that is that temp one, um, which is the director's cut of the film, you know, the not that Chris doesn't get final cut, but the, his initial build of the film, the one that he shows to the studio for the first time, that is – um, the foundation of the final mix that is um, we're in the, the era of uh, mixing progressively. So temp mix one leads to two leads to three. If there is a three, which leads into the final, there's no work that is really um, left behind unless we choose to modify it or leave it behind. But that first temp mix is a really important temp um, because it really is the foundation of what Chris's intentions are. Um, certainly a, a lot of the design work um, has been presented to Chris from Richard, as, as he mentioned, and we're getting the first pass at score that our composer has delivered to us. And, and so a lot of the big picture building blocks are put together, and that's really the stage where Chris can begin to feel out what's working and, and really what needs more time spent or whether it's more music or more resources or more thought. Uh, than anything else. That first temp is really crucial. There are typically two, sometimes three temps, rarely a fourth. I don't actually know if we've ever had a fourth, but the first one is the crucial one. And it's usually about eight days. Sometimes there's a ninth day, which is for nowadays, like that's a lot of time for a temp. Most of the temps that I work on, I can't speak for anybody else, are two days or three days. But it's an important one for Chris and we allocate nine days for it the only thing i would add to that is 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 uh that uh, you know that was a three-hour movie so I, I think eight days was probably appropriate for that first tent mix um and there there are no pre-dubs you go that first tent mix is your beginning stages of 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 the uh the, of the final mix and then you you do like gary said uh maybe three at the most four if we did that temp dubs and then you just start the final mix everything remains in unit form kevin's absolutely right there are no pre-dubs so everything is in its original unit form going forward we never exclusively take time um, on the dub stage per se to work on one department of sound exclusively without anything else we're always working in the big picture where all of us are present and everything is looking at what would be final presentation of course a lot of time is spent in editorial creating premixes of the sound effects. We couldn't do a temp dub in eight days unless the sound effects were pre-dubbed. But not for dialogue, though. Dialogue typically comes out of uh, Willie's... Dial dialogue is raw. Yeah, dialogue is coming out raw, but expert expertly cut by Dave Bach. If we can give Dave Bach a shout-out. Dave Bach and the dialogue uh, department, they you know, they, um, they take very good care of me, and um, 
you know, we're just constantly tweaking and, and building, constantly building all the way through. And when we do get beyond the temps, when we get into our final mix process, it's um, six weeks. Um, for the past several films, it's been six working weeks where the workflow is we start on Monday, wherever Chris feels like we need to start. And then we work through Thursday, end of day and Friday morning. We will screen the movie in its entirety from beginning to end, whether it's on the lot in a screening room or whether it's in um, screening room somewhere in the world, um, you know, somewhere in Los Angeles, usually because that's where our dub stage is. But um, we will every Friday take a look at the film. And after we screen it, we'll talk about it for a little bit. And then Friday after lunch, we fire it up again. We go back around the horn and we do that for six consecutive weeks. Many thanks to Willie, Richard, Gary and Kevin. The last film in alphabetical order to be nominated for Best Sound is director Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. I had the pleasure of discussing the sound work on this film during a live panel discussion after a screening of the film as part of our support of the Artist Academy program via the New York Film Festival and Film at Lincoln Center. For that discussion, we welcomed first-time nominee, sound designer, supervising sound editor, and re-recording mixer, Johnny Byrne, as well as Jonathan Glazer, who is nominated for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, and the film's producer, James Wilson, who is celebrating the Zone of Interest's nomination for Best Picture and Best International Feature Film. Fellow nominee in this category, Tarn Willers, was unable to join us for the conversation. But thankfully, Johnny, Jonathan, and James had plenty for us to discuss about the sound of the zone of interest, featured in episode 173 from December of last year. Very early on, I think. Um, my, but when I say early on, probably three years into the project. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was after a sustained period of research and um, trying to um, figure out exactly what it was I wanted to make um I, you know I didn't come to that conclusion straight away at all it wasn't like I had this fully formed thought and then we developed that it was more <clears throat> a great deal of reading and research and um a conversation and it came really from visiting the camps of course and then visiting specifically the the real uh house that that Rudolf Huss and his family lived in um, which was, as you see in the film, as close uh, in proximity to that simulation, basically, um, of the real house and garden, where the camp wall, one of the camp walls was on the one side, the camp wall on the other side, it did actually abut the garden. So that wall became very much a sort of focus of my attention, I think. Um, maybe not even that consciously at that point, but that became the kind of, the kind of compartmentalization made manifest literally in brick and mortar. The combination of how of that and then how do you, the difficulties of representation um, and the ethics of representation and how to do it, how to do it, how to show it and not show it at the same time. And, and so once through then probably another three years, um, we then had a, 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 a script which was clearly... Um, sitting on the side of the wall where the perpetrators lived and had their domestic day-to-day -day lives. Um, and the uh, horrors that 
and the atrocities that are being committed in the camps and the images that we already know in our minds from all of the, uh, you know, all of the documentaries and, uh, um, and books and, and fiction films and so on made of it that, that you, we, we kind of, I, I accept that people will understand what those images are. And so I had absolutely no interest in reenacting any of them. For me, it didn't feel um, like a, like the thing to do at all. But at the same time, they were out of sight. They needed to never be out of mind. So the, so that's really what I was serving in my, in my script was how how those sounds could come across the wall and kind of permeate every frame of the film, bear down on this kind of mundanity that we're sort of witnessing day to day. Um, and so really it's, it, I, it sort of felt like that, that was the second film we were making. We always talked about, there are two films, the one you see and the one you hear. And I think in many ways, the one you hear was always the one that I, well, you know, the one that I was more, not more interested in, but, but, but uh, that was the most important one to me. Johnny, I want to turn to you now. So, uh, two separate films, the one you see and the one that you hear, just tell us about the process of how you went about designing the the world that we don't see, the one that we hear uh, in the film, and especially, I'm kind of I'm kind of curious to hear how you, because it's not it's it's not just a constant drone that goes through the film; it modulates and it's accomplishing different things at different points in the track. So, can you talk about the process of creating that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, hi. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so there are there are two films, and 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 there's a great juxtaposition in 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 this what you see in this and the sound that you hear coming from over the wall and um the process is very much to uh formally complete the film one as we called it and to have the picture edit and and to go through the process of normal post-production and and include all the sounds that go towards the suspension of disbelief and and make the place real with all the layers of the dog barking next door or the baby crying and the cars passing on the street um and uh, but really going back a few years um, my work began with reading the script and realizing that you know that John and I needed to understand exactly what sounds would have been heard you know in Auschwitz at that point of time and and how you would have heard them as well the physicality of the sound in that space so um yeah it was about research really and, and understanding that really we needed to um make an inventory of, of everything from nature that, that would have been around at that time but and also you know planes and automobiles and stuff but but um, witness testimony and understanding exactly all the atrocities that did happen and, and to go some way to reenacting those and, and to have a, a library that we could call upon that was enormous um, so that when we got to the point of completing film one and and we were re- and film one was ready to to receive film two, we would then spend uh, a rather large period of time editing that together and so that was a process of John and I over maybe four or five months once we had the, the film quite complete and um yeah we we started off with thinking okay a sound here you know one maybe you would hear something you know maybe every 10 minutes and then we came to the realization that actually it's important to be really aware of the presence of the camp the whole time and and um from all of the sound we had, we we made uh, a, a kind of a continuous sound that that, that is very representative of um, all things in the camp. Um, yes, I suppose the crematoria, but the the people, 
so you're, you're talking about there, there's a there's sort of a um, it's, they're punctuated with with individual elements, but there is sort of a, a constant. There's a tone, like yep. a like a, a like a almost a bass tone that is kind of underscoring that. Is is that what you're talking about? I think that is. Yeah, I think that is what we're talking about, and I think it's um it it's it's the machine of the camp. It, it is the it, it's the enormous amount of people that are there. It, it's the the hum of the footsteps, and and the workshops and everything. And it and it it it's, uh, obviously provides the constant juxtaposition. And I think, but without uh, having to call upon such uh, specificity of individual, uh, you know, horrific sound, basically. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, is, it's is um, it yeah. It, it, well, it is, and we talked about that as almost the soil of the, f- the of the sound. You know, the soil of the place and. Yeah, that 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 kind of the undulation and the kind of constant movement and detail within that, and then and then all of the layers and layers and layers of sound uh, on top of that, yeah. and then how that over, as Johnny said, many months it would be something that we would just keep calibrating, keep calibrating, you know, because you know we probably we underdid it to begin with, then we of course we overdid it. And even though now, of course, it just feels like, well, it's simple, isn't it, really? But, but at the time, uh, simplicity is something you end with, you don't start with. Arri- arriving at the simplicity is not an, not an easy thing. Jim, I'm kind of curious. We, we talked about film one and, and film two, uh, film one being sort of the naturalistic world with the, the, with the family uh, in, in the house. Uh, without those elements, those sound elements of the camp over and, the, and what's happening over the wall, how, how, did that, how did it play? How did the film, it must have felt completely different with just... You mean during the editing? Yes. Yeah, that was, um, that was a thing. Um, but I suppose we knew it was a thing because, um, the, I mean, one of the things that marks the process that John and Johnny are talking about that they've described is that it, um, it's, it's a lot of thinking and a lot of forward planning. And actually that's a process that is um, intrinsic to your working method on any film because on Under the Skin it was similar always you know, John is working with Johnny before and indeed with Chris Oddy, production designer, and your Mika Levy, the composer, Eugene Strange, the location, everything is uh, about uh, thinking and planning ahead for this sort of symphonic process of bringing all these crafts together. Not, not a very old fashioned way of like, oh, you only bring on that person when you're four weeks from shooting so we all i think we always knew that that was going to be the case that we would be editing the film without this other element um i i I guess we didn't know what, what exactly what it would be but we knew it would be there and we knew it would be this other film and i suppose it was this process of get it right with picture um and then it will be a very interesting uh discovery and one thing that was different a bit from under the skin with this film, you've spoken about it, is that because often you're working early on mm-hmm. and the and the cut picture cutting is responding to the sound work and vice versa. But I think on this one, you, as you've said, it almost went to the more traditional idea of the picture needs to be finished. Well, we did do, we did film one, I guess, in a, in a similar me- method of very much working the sound edit alongside the picture cut so that so that all those uh, necessary reactions could occur but yeah certainly when it when and you it got to a point where it was like okay no okay it now that's to... that's pretty good so because i think it was important that film two didn't inform film one because they're ignoring it so 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 why would it 
That's a fascinating way to think about it. Yeah, the, 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 the audio from inside the camp couldn't because they were tuning it out. One of the questions that I had for you is I feel like, I feel like the, the sounds of the camp become more present and, and louder is not the correct word, but it's, I, I feel like there's more, there's more of it as we go through the film. Is that because maybe like the family, we start to tune it out as an audience as we go through it as well? It's funny that you picked up on that because we did, um, we thought it was a technical problem when we, like when we were mixing, we, we, um, we had this thing where we would play the film through from the beginning and it would sound great and exactly how we had remembered it the day before or whatever. And, um, and then if we started 30 minutes in or later, it would all sound completely wrong and everything would be too loud. And, and, you know, and I would check the buttons and think, what have I done wrong? And, uh, yeah. And it, and it wasn't that it was literally just that you have to watch it from the beginning to experience it. And, and that's the way it works. And you do dial it out. Yeah. Many thanks to Jonathan, Johnny, and James. So that concludes our special roundup episode with the nominees for best sound for the 2024 Academy Awards. As I mentioned up top, we have links to each of these full length conversations in our show notes. Be sure to check out our other roundup episodes with the nominees for best original score and best cinematography, as well as even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories. The best way to do that is to be subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information on all of our programs you can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, this is Dolby Creator Talks. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>